0: You know, I was um, I was born in 1967, <clears throat> and it always fascinates me to go back and look at the world into which I was born. And I recently came across a, an article uh, about the uh, alt folk band Buffalo Springfield uh, that featured uh, very younger versions of Stephen Stills and Neil Young. Well, in January of 1967, they released a song that would go on to to define. Uh, The 60s unrest that Americans went through. And it was called, For What It's Worth. The lyrics go like this. You'll sound familiar. It started out, there's something happening here. But what it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there telling me I got to beware. There's battle lines being drawn. Nobody's right if everybody's wrong. Young people speaking their minds, getting so much resistance from behind. You've got to stop. Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look, what's going down? Now you'll have that song in your head for the rest of the morning. You're welcome. Well, it actually turns out that Stills was writing uh, a song about some riots that were going on in the sort of Sunset Strip area of L.A. during that time. Apparently the region was a place where the young hippies hung out, but a recent city council had voted to bring a, a highway through there and destroy their hangouts. But it was inevitable that the song got taken up by that generation as a Vietnam protest. 18-year-old Marine Private Bill Earhart first heard the song literally on his way to report for duty and head out to Vietnam. And he says he remembered not knowing exactly what it was that the band was talking about. But by the time that he returned after an 18-month tour over there, he said he felt betrayed and confused and that the song had taken on new meaning for him. In the article, he said this. He said, every time I hear that song, I think about how innocent I was, how little I knew. I had no idea what was about to happen to me, and that's what the song brings back for me. I wonder if you can't relate to that feeling he's relating there. Because I do think that it is a mainstay of human experience to reach a time in your life where you start to feel like you've been lied to where there was a veil over your eyes, and, and that the world just was not as it seemed. But now, now, I can see the truth. And nothing's going to be the same afterwards. You start walking around saying things like, people need to wake up. Don't be sheeple. What we need is a revolution, a change in the way we think. You know, the Beatles would sing, so you say you want a revolution. We all want to change the world. When I was in high school, Tracy Chapman, folk singer, singer singer-songwriter, said, don't you know I'm talking about a revolution and it sounds like a whisper. My guess is if you did the work and you went back into every decade of the last 50 years, you would find in American pop culture some longing for upheaval, for for a a seismic tectonic shift in life in in the way we know it. Now, what does this have to do with anything? Well, We're starting this morning our fall 2021 study through the book of Acts. And I hope by now you're getting used to sort of my method that whenever we study these books, I feel it's so helpful to get the 50,000-foot perspective on the book to see what it's all about. And I want to submit to you this morning that the message of the book of Acts is about starting a revolution. And it's revolutionary in its message. The book, of course, is written by our friend Dr. Luke. We were able to study through the Gospel of Luke just a couple of years ago. And you may be interested to find out that the book of Acts is actually the second part of that work. Look at verse 1. He says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Theophilus, right, you remember, was the same addressee uh, from those first few verses of the Gospel of Luke. So originally, Luke and Acts were intended to be a one unified work together. But focus on how Luke says it. What he says is, in my prior work, the Gospel of Luke, was about what Jesus began to do and teach. The implication is he's still at it. (laughs) Jesus is still marching on. But here's the twist. After chapter 1, though, of, of Acts, that we'll talk about next week, Jesus is no longer bodily present. That is, he leaves The question then is how can Jesus continue to bring about this powerful revolution of both souls and societies when he's not physically there? The book of Acts is an answer to that question. So this morning I want to look at the book as a whole and consider how we're going to ask that question. Because what I think you're going to see in this entire book is what you have is the dynamic activity of each member of the Trinity as the early church was forged and planted. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all working together in a perfect weaving of intentions to mount this this most profound revolutionary movement that humankind has ever known and ever will know. That's the premise. Look, we've spent three years at CPC looking through our identity We're now ready to turn to then what our mission is in this community. What is it that we're hoping to accomplish? The book of Acts shows us that what we are doing is, is we are participating with the triune God in his mission in the world. And for that reason, we can look at this whole thing under three headings. We can see, first of all, God directing. We see the kingdom advanced. And finally, we see Jesus Continued. Let's look at that first one. God directing. Look, the first thing that you're going to notice, if you do a non-stop read through the book of Acts, is just how much of the book has God's sovereignty, and I mean God's explicit sovereignty behind everything that happens. He is the primary actor in this early Christian history. Let me just give you a quick sample. Acts two twenty-three. We're going to find Peter preaching a sermon in the midst of which, in verse twenty-three, he says this: "This Jesus." Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. Did you hear that? Everything that happened with Jesus, including his death and execution, was what God wanted to happen. It was all part of his plan, even it was caused by him. And, not but, it was you who crucified and killed him, Peter says. Hmm. You go to Acts chapter 4, and you have Peter praying at that point, saying, Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Did you catch that? (laughs) It's hard to miss, isn't it? The people did whatever God had predestined to take place. Acts 17, 31, we find Paul talking and interacting in his day when he said, He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The day in which the world will be judged, Paul says, was fixed. It was fixed by God and it was his power who raised Jesus from the dead. And here's the deal. I could multiply these examples on and on, but the point should be clear These earliest believing people understood all of their actions in evangelizing and church planting as something that God was doing in his sovereignty. And, not but, they saw themselves as vital to the execution of that plan. There was no conflict between them. But I hope that you see the tension between those two beliefs, don't you? Look, on the one hand, when you read scripture, that God is sovereign over every single thing that happens, you think to yourself oftentimes, if that's true, then why would we bother with the effort? This is kind of the age-old question, right? Like, well, if God already knows what I'm going to pray, then why should I pray? And, of course, there's a long history of Bible teachers who have gone to great lengths to sort of make these passages not say what they clearly do say because they're afraid that if they teach it, God's people will grow inactive, will turn into, as we are known, the frozen chosen. It's never a funny joke. I don't know why I even say it anymore. But on the other hand, if you grew up in one of those churches that avoided the Bible's teaching about God's absolute sovereignty, didn't that church have a peculiar character? A number of years ago, there was a young lady who came to our church who grew up in a setting like that, and I remember her saying to me afterwards, she was like, you know, I feel like in where I grew up, the church was constantly talking about what I was doing and what I was supposed to do. She said, but when I come here, it seems like you're more preoccupied with what God is doing and how what he has accomplished. Of course, I was like, Bingo. But I simply want to say that the characters that we're going to encounter in this book believe both things quite vigorously. On the one hand, they believe that the advance of Jesus' kingdom is their life's goal and mission, and they should extend every ounce of effort in the achievement of that goal. That's the first thing they believe. And, (laughs) not but, that God was overseeing, overriding. He indeed was the overarching author of every bit of it. There was, there was no effort on their part to untangle what looks like to us as some thorny philosophical problem. I mean, how can we reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? They never make an attempt to do so. This is, by the way, not the only time you're gonna see the Bible sort of hold these two truths in tension. One of my favorite passages is Philippians 2, verse 12 in this regard, where Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence but more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Then verse 13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Did you catch that? Not only does Paul exhort the Philippians to to work at their sanctification, he says you should do so with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who works in you. Not only to do the work, but also to want to do the work. In short, he's totally sovereign over the entire thing. So look, when I was growing up, this was a... (laughs) Needless to say, a major stumbling block for me in understanding the Bible. So forgive me for laboring on it, but I really have come to believe that even though it's hard to put these two truths together in a neat little philosophical passage in my mind, I'm also convinced that I can't live without both truths. Follow me for a second. If I believed that God was totally sovereign to the exclusion of my efforts, I'm really just a robot. Truth of the matter is, I would never get out of the bed in the morning. Why should I? Why bother if my actions don't matter? But of course the Bible says they do. The Bible says my choices are important. They have consequences. I am privileged to be an actor in this uh, play that God is writing. But here's the other thing. If I believe that God was not sovereign and my choices were really the only thing that mattered, I still would never get out of the bed in the morning. You wanna know why? <laughs> because. What if I make a wrong step? I mean, what if I can't turn my life around? What if I'm stuck in this sort of a trap of my own stupidity? No, the truth is, I need both of these truths operating in perfect tension with one another if I'm ever going to make any progress in this life. I had a friend of mine pose me a question a number of years ago. We were having a conversation about a book that the first time that I was reading through, The Lord of the Rings. Uh, the J.R.R. Tolkien classic. And at one point he asked me a question. He said, look, you could frame it this way, Les. He said, who is it that makes the decision to throw the ring of power into the fires of Mount Doom? Is it Frodo the Hobbit or is it J.R.R. Tolkien? And as we talked, we began to realize, well, the answer to that question is it depends on whose perspective you're looking at. If I'm looking at the perspective of the author of all things, of course it was Tolkien who caused it. But if I'm within the story, it's Frodo that actually was the cause of those things. And I realized I had answered my own question. Look, why would we belabor this point? Here's the reason. Because if we are hoping to extend ourselves into any measure of mission into this world, there is nothing like the sovereignty of God to create stability in that mission. And I'm choosing my words very carefully. It is stability in mission. It's stability in that you can't get rocked when you've got the sovereignty of God. I was reading from someone years ago who was talking about the American Puritans, some of the great Reformed Calvinists who believed in God's absolute sovereignty. And one writer said, You know what was interesting? The Puritans were almost impossible to disillusion. Because they were so convinced that God was the author of everything, they didn't feel like their, their future was being spoiled in any way. They couldn't get rocked. Look, even in the midst of pandemics, where it seems he can't be sovereign over it, over it, he assures us that he is still at work. And what that does is that keeps us stable, keeps us from getting thrown off track. Okay, so that's the first point that we establish And there, is that, that God is directing it all. But secondly... We see that there is a kingdom that's advancing. Look, the next major character in the book of Acts clearly is the Holy Spirit. Not a whole lot of books in the Bible that are more prominently featuring the activity of the Holy Spirit than this book. You think about it. You've got Acts chapter 2 where you get the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Something we're going to look at in length here in a couple of weeks. You get to Acts chapter 4 and the Spirit shows up and gives boldness to the believers that are gathered there as they, what, continue to speak the word of God. You're going to find in Acts chapter 10 when Peter shows up with Cornelius, and we have the great Gentile Pentecost, that the new believers begin to speak in, in, in languages that they never grew up learning. <clears throat> Finally, throughout all of Paul's missionary journeys, he's constantly leaning on the guidance of the Holy Spirit to know what path he's supposed to take. In other words, what you're going to find is, is that the Spirit is the active agent of the whole book. And Again, we're going to do a bunch of deep dives on the Holy Spirit this semester, but But oftentimes people miss the fact that the Holy Spirit is also the active agent of the Trinity itself. Father and Son, in our view of the Trinity, work in perfect coordination with one another. But it is the Spirit who executes their will. And if something, therefore, is happening to you, spiritually speaking... That is, you start to feel like you need to discover or you are considering or maybe you're making application to Bible truth. The book of Acts is going to teach you that's the Holy Spirit that's doing that. That's the only reason why you would have that thought or that inclination is because the Spirit was moving. Look, an honest confession here. I think for most people when they jump into the book of Acts, it's easy to get distracted by the extraordinary experiences that these people had when the Spirit showed up. And we kind of love those fireworks, right? We love arguing about it. Uh, You know, the people that were miraculous healed, and they grew up speaking in tongues that they didn't grow up learning. What does that mean? But, but, But if you get distracted by that, you'll oftentimes miss that there is a far more prominent, what we might call ordinary, and it's not so ordinary, Way in which the Spirit mostly works, and it's going to surprise you. Because almost every time in the book of Acts, where you see this major outpouring of the Spirit, do you know what it happens in the midst of? Preaching. Now, look, I realize that this 28 minutes is most of the time where you're like, Are we almost there yet? Are we going to do this now? But in the Bible's estimation, this activity that God's people have been engaged in for 2,000 years is where the Spirit shows up. It's undeniable. Crazy things happen in Pentecost after a 22-verse sermon that Peter preaches. Again, in Solomon's Colonnade in chapter three, you get the same outpouring. The deacon, Stephen, the first Christian martyr in in Acts chapter seven, he preaches a long sermon where there's a huge outpouring of the Spirit. You even get the same thing happen to Peter when he goes to Cornelius' house and they start to speak in tongues. I mean, the whole book of Acts, if you think about it, ends with a description of what the Apostle Paul was doing. very last verse in the whole book says this: and he was preaching the kingdom of God and persuading them about Jesus. This book is a preaching book, in many ways, and that is most vibrantly where you see the spirit of word at work. And because the Apostle Paul ended his preaching exercise with information about the kingdom of God, I think that instructs us to know exactly how we know preaching is spirit-filled. Preaching is spirit-filled not when crazy, miraculous things happen. We're going to deal with that in a couple of weeks. But preaching is spirit-filled when all of a sudden it begins to move you into thinking about the kingdom. Think about this for a second. Have you ever sat through a sermon and gotten a little angry? because I'm using an illustration about your life without your permission. You ever done that? And I had no idea what was going on with you. The Spirit does that stuff. Or even better yet, I've had people come up to me uh, who have looked and said to themselves, you know, a couple of months ago you preached a sermon, and I remember you said blah, 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 and I need to tell you it has absolutely transformed the way I'm thinking. And I'll nod and I'll smile and I'll accept the compliment because I'll take it wherever I can get it. But the funny thing is, in the back of my mind, I'm like, I never said that. I know for a fact I never said that. I wrote the sermon, I was there. I did not say that. What happened? That's the spirit translating things as someone gets up and proclaims the word of God. He's working. John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, says this. He says, Such is the correspondence between the Word of God and the heart of man. Listen to this. And such is the similarity of the workings of the human heart in similar circumstances. That the preacher, who is enlightened by the Scripture and the Holy Spirit, is doing little more than just relating the exercises of his own mind. And it appears to his hearers, however, though, to express their very hopes, their fears, their joys, and their sorrows, even better than they could have experienced it themselves. You see the power. Look, The Spirit's going to come in on the heels of preaching in a way where we begin to see the kingdom of God and our place in it and our responsibility to it. That's how you know something was Spirit-filled. Thirdly and finally, we see Jesus continued because the last feature of the book of Acts is how Jesus was continuing to work, which like I said at the outset is going to be kind of confusing because you're going to realize in next week's sermon, Jesus is going to leave bodily. How can Jesus be absent bodily but still be active in the church? Well, we're going to return to this topic when we get to Saul's conversion who became the apostle Paul. But there's a very curious moment where Jesus confronts Saul, who will become Paul, and he looks at him and he says, why are you persecuting me? And of course, it's as if Saul looks and says to him, I mean, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not persecuting you. I mean, who could persecute you, someone who is so majestic and so terrifying? No, no, I was going after these Christians down in Damascus. That's what I was after. But what we're going to talk about when we get there in a couple of months is that there's a change that happens in the Apostle Paul in that moment. Because it is as if Jesus convinces Paul in that moment, look, there is no difference between your persecution of me and your persecution of my people. You want to know why? Why? Because I have so closely identified myself with them. I have so intertwined my life with them that anything that can be said to be true of them became true of me on the cross. That is, all of the sin that has wrecked their lives became true of me and my Father executed me for it. Why? So that then anything that can be said to be true of me is now true of them. I treat them like, like, like brothers and sisters in Christ that we now share in my Heavenly Father. The love that my Father has for me is now there because of this connection, this union with Christ. A number of, um, number of uh, years ago, we actually had, I think it was two years ago, we had a guy named Rankin Wilburn to uh, uh, one of our Bible conferences who's written a book on this very topic. and he talks about being in high school and having a certain football play that was his favorite because it involved Andrew. Andrew was a mountain of a man in high school. He was huge and played right tackle. And it was always uh, uh, Rankin's favorite play because he played tailback. And there was a play that was sort of constructed. Well, you know what? Let me let him tell you. Here's what he says. He says, Coach Junior set Andrew, the biggest guy on our team, in front of me as a blocker. And the quarterback would hand me the ball. With Andrew leading the way, one man made way for another. I was completely obscured by the strength and power of his work, even though I was moving to freedom. Everything that was supposed to hit me hit Andrew instead. He blazed a path for me against all of the hostile forces on the other side of the line and he made a way for me to glory. I was hidden in Andrew. You see how that works? Look, our belief is that Jesus is still at work here and now, even though he is not bodily present. It is also our belief that when you come to interact with other believing people, that's not just fellowship in the hopes that you find a buddy. It is the most tangible interaction that you will have with Jesus himself. It's both mystical and incredibly concrete, is it not? We pray for Jesus' comfort. And I think we imagine that to be in the misty fog of our imaginations and mind, which I'm not denying he meets us in. But the tangible expression of Jesus' presence is going to be through the handshakes, through the hugs, through the friendship, through the phone call in the middle of the night, through the lunch that you sit down and just talk about your lives together, those are the living hands and feet of Christ and his people. And because it's Jesus, our mission is invincible. Because he's Andrew. <laughs> he's taken everything. He's absorbing it all. He's leading with his strength and his power. He, everything that could potentially ruin me has already hit him. And because it's hit him, it can't touch me. I'm safe. I can run on and blaze a path against every hostile force, Delta variant included. Look, Jesus has called us to charge into the world and advance a kingdom, but it's a kingdom that he's already won. It's ground that he's already taken. So we're not going to do it as God's people with all of the worry and the hand-wringing that so associates people's desire to change the culture around us. We don't do that because we're behind King Jesus and he's continuing, he's moving. We're going to watch the seed form of it this entire fall to see how it happened then and we're going to see echoes in our own experience every single week. But it's his work. It's not our mission to drum it up as best as we can. It's His work. And because of that, we have confidence and we have certainty. And that's different, is it not? Let's pray. Then, Lord Jesus, in the midst of that difference, we pray that you would give us the grace to realize it, to think about it, to mull over it. Oh, Father, let us realize you and the Son and the Spirit working together in perfect coordination have created a salvation for your people that is unstoppable. Father, we are 2,000 years later now and it has gone from a small little band of 12 men and you to something that that, that is on almost every corner of the earth. You're still moving. You're still continuing. Give us sight of that, Father, before we go home in despair because of whether or not we've got to wear a mask this week. Father, give us grace. Give us grace to see your mission